0: For today's podcast, we're going to do something a little special. We're going to talk about two architects of the Silver Age. One for Marvel is Jack Kirby, massive co-creator of everything we're enjoying from Marvel today. And we have Julia Schwartz. Same thing can be said on the DC Universe end of things. So let's go through it. For a very special CBH podcast edition, splash page. So, we all know who Stanley is, but who was Jack Kirby? Jack Kirby is co creator and a founding father of the Marvel Universe. No one can really say with certainty what was the nature of the creative discussions between him and Stanley, but no doubt they, with the help of Steve Ditko, came up with one of the best comic book franchises in history. It is important to see what Jack worked on before his work with Marvel that would strongly suggest his contributions went beyond simply just drawing, and that he brought many important ideas and concepts into his collaborations with Stan Lee, co-creating people like Thor. The Mighty Thor was created by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee in 1962 in Journey into Mystery 83. Although this Thor is the most famous, Jack worked on a couple of Thors before this version. Jack had a long relationship with the Norse gods and reportedly loved their stories as a child. His first Thor was for the company later known as DC Comics after leaving Timely Comics. This Thor was found in Adventure Comics 75, 1942, the villain from Valhalla. He would then return to the character in 1957 again for DC Comics in Tales of the Unexpected 16, 1957, The Magic Hammer. The Magic Hammer story in 1957 is interesting because we get a prototypical Mjolnir Hammer held in Thor's hand, which would be the same hammer he holds in the 1962 version he co-created with Stan Lee. Another cool precursor from this issue is that Thor's hammer is tested against the tree in this 1957 image here. Jack Kirby would have the Marvel Thor do the same thing in his first appearance in Journey into Mystery 83 in 1962. Again, the tree is nothing compared to the hammer of Thor. The plot of the 1957 DC issue revolved around Loki stealing Thor's hammer. The same plot would be used in Journey into Mystery 92, 1963, where Loki would steal Thor's hammer causing a great deal of mischief. Another fun fact is that the first villains to fight Thor are the Stone Men from Saturn, and that these Stone Men have origins in Jack Kirby's fascination with the Easter Island Stone Men, which he first used for DC in House of Mystery 85, 1959. Then later in 1961, for Marvel's Tales to Astonish 16, Jack would bring the same Stoneman into Journey into Mystery 83 in 1962 to fight Thor in his first appearance. Another interesting thing about the Thunder God's first appearance in Journey into Mystery 83's stone men were that they were from Saturn. So why Saturn? Well, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon worked on a similar plot For Fawcett's Captain Marvel Adventures 1, way back in 1941, where Captain Marvel was referred to as the Thunder God as he fights aliens from Saturn. Another key plot point in the old Thor comics from the 1960s was the love that Thor had for Jane Foster. And this romance point also appears to have a fun precursor in Young Romance 14, 1949, where a woman fantasizes about a handsome Viking lover, and note the headdress on the bottom of the first panel. It looks just like Thor's. The Jane Foster romance point would then become another key side story within the 1960s Thor comics that Jack Kirby and Stan Lee would do together. So to sum it all up, Jack Kirby, before he ever worked at Marvel, worked on Thor, Thor's Hammer, Thor's Hammer destroying a tree, Loki stealing Thor's Hammer, Easter Island stone men. Thunder Gods fighting aliens from Saturn, and then a Jane Foster type love interest. So it clearly makes sense whenever we open up a Thor comic now, on the bottom it's going to say Thor with a creator credit given to Jack Kirby. Iron Man has a very interesting set of Jack Kirby precursors. The first Iron Man story was credited to Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, Don Heck, and Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was said to have drawn the cover. Which then was added on with interiors by Don Heck. In this case, Kirby penciled the cover as well as coming up with the character design. The key plot point from Iron Man's first appearance is Tony Stark's heart problem contained within his iron suit. Two years before this, Jack worked on a story with Stanley called The Thing Called Metallo in 1961 in Tales of Suspense number 16. In this story, a man is in a strong Iron Man-style suit with a similar heart problem. There was a Metalo precursor to this in Action Comics 252 in 1959, the first appearance of the more famous DC villain Metalo, who is a criminal in an iron body with a kryptonite heart, written by Robert Bernstein. Note the facial similarity to Tony Stark. There is an account where Robert Bernstein and Jack Kirby discussed this story together when Kirby was working at D.C. before leaving for Marvel, which could make Metalo a literary ancestor to Iron Man. Another feature in Iron Man's first appearance in 1963 was that Tony Stark was forced into making weapons for his Asian captors during his time being trapped during the Vietnam War. Well, Jack Kirby worked on a similar story with Dave Wood in 1958 for Adventure Comics 255, during his Silver Age revamp of Green Arrow in The War That Never Ended, when Oliver Queen was trapped by Japanese soldiers and forced to make weapons for them while he was in captivity. This image is from the DC Kirby Omnibus Volume 1. So it becomes very apparent that Jack Kirby had experience with characters in tin suits, heart problems, as well as being extorted by their Asian captors to build weapons all from his experience over at DC Comics. Whether he came up with those ideas on his own or whether they came up in collaboration with other writers at DC, no one can really say. But it becomes apparent that these could have been ideas contributed to the Tony Stark Iron Man that we saw in that Tales of Suspense issue for which he created the cover as well as the character design. As far as Ant-Man, he first appeared in Tales to Astonish 27, 1962, as a one-shot sci-fi character and was brought back as a superhero in an issue 35 by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Hank Pym explored the microscopic world as well as demonstrates that he retains his full human strength concentrated in a smaller body. Kirby used the shrinking man and subatomic universe idea before his work with Marvel, in his Menace of the Microman story he did with Joe Simon for Archie Comics in The Double Life of Private Strong, No. 1, 1959. Jack Kirby has an ant-based strength precursor in Black Cat Mystic, No. 60, 1957, which he made with Joe Simon for Harvey Comics called The Ant Extract. In 1956, Jack Kirby wrote and drew Yellow Claw No. 2 for the company later known as Marvel Comics, where he shows the villain's army of men that were made ant-sized by a shrinking machine. Going back even further to 1940, we have one of the early Joe Simon-Jack Kirby collaborations in Blue Bolt, where the hero of the series is shrunken with a ray that compresses his atoms to a smaller soldier. Yeah, I know, that goes way back, but things can always go back farther. But it becomes quickly evident from looking at all this that Jack had extensive experience with shrinking heroes before entering his time at Marvel and co-creating Ant-Man. It makes sense why, in the beginning of every Ant-Man comic, you'll see it say Ant-Man with the creator credit given to Jack Kirby. The Incredible Hulk was created in 1962 in Hulk No. 1 by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. He was more of an extension of the Monster Comics tradition that Marvel had before its superheroes. However, there were a few precursors that Jack worked on, and it appears he brought with him or inserted them into Hulk number one. One key point from the first Hulk issue is the initial setup in the army base with the impending gamma bomb explosion. As the military men, including Dr. Banner, are huddled up and watching from far away through the bomb shelter window, Bruce notices a young man in the field and runs out to save him. This sets him up to be blown up and irradiated by the gamma bomb, turning him into the Incredible Hulk. Oddly enough, this is the same setup from the February 18-22 1960 daily strips of Jack Kirby's Sky Masters of the Space Force, when Skymasters is testing a bomb with the same construction as Hulk's gamma bomb and runs out into the field to save a boy who unwittingly walked into the blast radius. Check out these parallels. Of course, the difference between the Sky Master strip and the Incredible Hulk comic is that there was a different conclusion. Bruce Banner became the Hulk. However, his facial reaction to gamma rays is very similar to a gamma gun that was shooting a gamma ray at a victim in Jack Kirby's Captain 3D issue 1 in 1953. So Jack worked with gamma rays years before he ever worked at Marvel. So seeing a couple of these examples, it makes sense when, on every Incredible Hulk comic you read now, on the bottom it'll say, Incredible Hulk, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. As far as the X-Men, there are a great many of Jack Kirby precursors, considering Jack did mutant stories well before Uncanny X-Men 1 1963. In X-Men number 1, Kirby and Lee get it off to a strong start introducing the concept of being a mutant born with a superpower that sets them apart from other humans. Professor X gets five mutants together to form a team. In 1957, Jack Kirby worked on a story in Black Cat, Mystic, 59-1957, involving five mutants who were born different with powers abducted and raised by the government for research in which they get together and escape the government at the end of the story. Going back further to Yellow Claw 2, 1956, we have an even earlier mutant story, where the word mutant is clearly stated, and a group of six gifted mutants are used and abused by the villainous Yellow Claw, against the world with a very powerful reality-bending effect. Even the X-Men artificial intelligence robots the Sentinels, created in 1965 for issue 14, with the cover design by Jack Kirby, has a precursor in 1957's Showcase number 7 in the Challengers of the Unknown's Ultivac story. Ultivac was an artificial intelligence robot that was getting smarter and more aware, similar to Master Mold of the Sentinels. Magnetism is an awesome power for any character to have, and this was the distinct power of the X-Men's first and most famous villain, Magneto, who premiered on their first cover shown on the right below. Magneto in 1963 was a mutant and would have a Jack Kirby Stanley precursor in Strange Tales 84, 1961, about a monster with magnetic powers called Magneto. Jack's work with magnetic monsters goes even farther back than this, however, to his time at DC Comics in My Greatest Adventure 21, 1958, in We Were Doomed by the Metal-Eating Monster, with its image on the left below. As you can see, Jack was experimenting with magnetic rays in comic book form way before he ever co-created the Marvel Universe in the 1960s with Stan Lee. So now after seeing this section, it makes sense whenever you open up an X-Men comic now and it'll say the X-Men created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. So this leads into the Fantastic Four part of the discussion, which is the largest and most important, considering it started off the Marvel Silver Age in its first issue in 1961. There are many aspects to this first Fantastic Four issue, so dissecting it for its Jack Kirby precursors has to happen in multiple levels. The first level will be in discussing the group characters, then on to the group transformative experience, the cosmic radiation in space creating unknown side effects, alien interactions, and a couple villains. As far as group characters, there are astounding similarities between Jack Kirby and Dave Wood's Challengers of the Unknown, created in 1957, and Jack Kirby and Stan Lee's Fantastic Four, created in 1961. Both teams have a Professor-Doctor type. Both teams have a Rocky Strongman. Both teams have a blonde pretty person, yes, Maybe a little bit of gender reassignment here from Ace to Susan. And both teams have a red guy, Red Ryan, and the Human Torch. Both Doctors even have the same characteristic pose in their introduction to the story. Susan appears to have the blonde element of Ace Morgan along with the passive female element from the Challenger's female co-star, June Robbins, who has a strong resemblance to Susan Storm. So are the similarities between the four members of each character, a complete coincidence? Well, I don't think so. Roy Thomas, who was Marvel's former editor-in-chief, as well as a writer at Marvel when both Stan and Jack were working on the Fantastic Four together, actually said in an interview in a 1978 fanzine called Collector's Dream No. 5, that Jack Kirby brought over the spirit and group dynamic from the Challengers of the Unknown Comics and put that into the Fantastic Four. As far as both teams' origins, both the 1957 Challengers and the 1961 Fantastic Four start as a primordial mundane group that go through a near-death transformative experience where they vow to stay together and take on a large range of possible adventures. In the Challengers, the near-death experience causes them to take a vow of adventurism and overcome all superhuman conflicts as a team. The Fantastic Four take a similar vow after the cosmic rays that created the crash are shown to give them superpowers. This near-death group transformative experience is clearly evident in both stories. Of course, a lot of people say, well, what about getting effects or getting powers from cosmic rays or from a trip to space? After all, that's the main take-home point for Marvel's first Silver Age superhero comic, right? I mean, didn't Ben Grimm scream this? Well, that does happen in some stories worked on or created by Jack Kirby before his time at Marvel. In 1959, Jack Kirby's Sky Masters of the Space Force have some strips specifically about the unknown effects of cosmic radiation on humans in space travel. In this case, Jack was going for a realistic take on space travel, and here shows that cosmic irradiation induced personality changes in this astronaut. In 1958, Jack Kirby worked on Challengers of the Unknown number 3, where Rocky takes a trip through space and comes back with superpowers. This 1958 issue is really worth reading because the powers that Rocky comes back with are very similar to the powers harnessed by the Fantastic Four, including Flame, Super Strength, body reshaping, and invisibility. As far as superpowers being called fantastic, as in Fantastic Four, in Double Life of Private Strong One, 1959 by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, they describe having a superpower as quote-unquote fantastic in very bold writing. They also further go on to say that having superpowers involves exploring more percentages of one's brain. Let's go even farther back, though, on our journey through cosmic rays to the year 1940 when Jack Kirby and Joe Simon worked on their sci-fi space fantasy character, the Blue Bolt. There was a villain named Marto who expanded his mind powers through cellular augmentation through cosmic radiation bombardment. So this precursor of cosmic ray-induced powers has been around and used by Jack Kirby for more than 20 years before Fantastic Four number one. On top of the similarities in their origins, the two comics held quite a few others. Compare this opening splash page in Showcase 11, 1957, and Fantastic Four 7, 1962. Both sets of aliens have similar methods of transporting themselves and their guests, our heroes, from one point in their base to another. Also check out the similarities in plot from Showcase 1, 1958, The Human Pets, and Fantastic Four 24, 1964, The Infant Terrible. Both stories are about a green, advanced, superior alien child that kidnapped our four heroes and was lectured by its parents to leave them alone. Even the Puppet Master, a villain who premiered in Fantastic Four 8 1965, has a Jack Kirby precursor in Black Magic 4 1951 for Prize Comics, with the same ending last panel of the fallen puppet next to our hero's feet. Green shape-changing aliens was also common in the Silver Age and in Fantastic 4 they presented in issue 2 1962 as the shape-changing scrolls and in issue 11 1963 as the impossible man. Jack Kirby made a green shape-changing alien years earlier in 1956 in Fighting American number no. 7. On top of the green shape-changing aliens, the Fantastic Four also fought the Mad Finker and his awesome android in Fantastic Four 15 1963. And this scientist with this semi-living android servant has a Jack Kirby precursor in his 1950s newspaper tryout strip, Chip Hardy. The scientist's name was Gideon Challenger and his android was called The Child. So what about time travel? Wasn't that a Fantastic Four thing? There actually was a Jack Kirby precursor to the Fantastic Four time travel adventures, which presented in the Challenger story of using said time travel machine to go back to ancient Egypt in Challengers number four 1958. The same setup was used in Fantastic Four 19, to go to a similar time and place. It's very cool how they are both glowing yellow objects in a square shape. It gives the two stories a sense of Jack Kirby continuity, even though they're in different companies. As mentioned before, both teams went back to ancient Egypt in these two issues and both teams were subject to Egyptian captivity. An interesting side note on the villain in Challenger's 1958 issue, he is called the Time Wizard and he has the same costume design as another Marvel time-traveling villain named Immortus, who premiered in Avengers 10 1964 with the cover done by Jack Kirby. Now when the Inhumans premiered in Fantastic 45 1965 by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, their origins were further explored by them in Thor 146, 1967, in the origin it shows that ancient man, after having been evolved by the Kree aliens, took refuge from other cavemen on their island of Atalan. Something neat here is that Atalan was referred to as the Island of the Gods in caveman times in Jack Kirby and Joe Simon's Tuck Cave Boy in Captain America Comics 1, 1941. This essentially means that Jack Kirby and Stan Lee brought forward Jack Kirby and Joe Simon's Attilan Island of the Gods caveman story from 1941 and put it into his Silver Age work in Marvel in the Fantastic Four and Thor comics in setting up the Inhumans. So by analyzing and breaking down the Fantastic Four work by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, and looking at his Jack Kirby precursors, it's very easy to see why now it shows every time you open up a Fantastic Four comic book, it writes clearly created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. When the Avengers came out in 1963, They ran into a series of very interesting villains. One was already established in the last episode of Immortus, who had a Jack Kirby precursor in The Time Wizard, as well as Loki that we mentioned from the Thor episode, who also had a Jack Kirby precursor. Well, these established heroes would go on to fight more and more interesting villains, and there were even more that had Jack Kirby precursors. The Lava Men in Avengers 5, 1964 have a Jack Kirby precursor in his Volcano Men from DC's Tales of the Unexpected 22, 1959. The Ringmaster was another villain that fought the Hulk in Incredible Hulk 3, 1962, shown on the right, and he also had a precursor by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon in Captain America Comics 5, 1941, One of the Avengers, Captain America, would fight and meet MODOK in Tales of Suspense, 94, 1967, who is astoundingly similar and likely based on or runs in a similar creative vein as the aforementioned Marto, villain from Blue Bolt, 1940, by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. They are both essentially augmented beings with great brains with very little limbs to walk around in hence needing exoskeletons to support their superior intellect and their bodies. It's easy to see why when you open an Avengers comic, it says, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Now that we've checked out the Avengers villains, let's take a look at Kirby's influence and introduction of Spider-Man to Marvel. Now to be clear, the Peter Parker Spider-Man that we all know was a clear product of Steve Ditko and Stan Lee, especially Ditko's art design, costume, web shooters, Peter Parker look, etc. with Stan's sense of comedic dialogue. Oftentimes in Silver Age Marvel, Jack Kirby would create a costume or a look on a comic book cover like he did with Iron Man or Immortus, etc. Then the dialogue and interior art or plot would be done by other people. In the case of Spider-Man's cover to his first appearance in Amazing Fantasy fifteen, nineteen sixty-two, 1962, that wasn't the case for Jack Kirby. See, he did draw the cover to the published version, however, the actual costume design was not his idea. That was actually Steve Ditko's idea, and he had his own comic book cover proposal, which has been shown many times but was passed over for the Jack Kirby version. I consider this costume and character to be Steve Ditko's visual Mona Lisa. However, does this mean that the idea for Spider-Man was entirely all Steve Ditko and Stan Lee? Not exactly. Steve Ditko states in his essays that Jack Kirby had worked on The Fly with Joe Simon for Archie Comics in 1959 and had worked on a five-page proposal Spider-Man character with Stan. Ditko pointed out to Stan that it was too similar to his Fly character, so Stan gave the character to Steve Ditko to gestate. There are other blogs online that catalog the history of Joe Simon with a theoretical Spider-Man character that he wanted to create that translated into The Fly with Jack Kirby in 1959. Looking at his first appearance in Adventures of the Fly 1, 1959, and Spider-Man in 1962, there is very little comparison because most believe that Spider-Man that we all know is incredibly much better. However, that being said, There were a few interesting elements that did carry over. Spider-Man was an ostracized orphan named Peter Parker, raised by his Uncle Ben, gets bitten by a spider, and then can climb walls and lift an incredible amount of weight. The fly was also an ostracized orphan named Tommy Troy, adopted by a man named Ben, sees a spider shortly before getting the powers of a fly, and now can climb walls and lift an incredible amount of weight. There were a lot more differences than similarities, but the bare bones are oddly similar. Now, at some point it's been said that Stan Lee saw a fly in the wall and came up with the idea of Spider-Man. I actually kind of think that the fly on the wall was The Adventures of the Fly 1 by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. One can't really study comic book history without running into Jack Kirby. Jack was there at the ground floor of comic books and with Joe Simon, then Stan Lee, and then himself contributed greatly to various genres, including superheroes, romance, horror, crime, westerns, science fiction, and newspaper strips. He had more than 20 years of incredible comic book creativity and financial success before he joined up with Stan Lee and jointly created many key factors in Marvel's Silver Age starting in 1961. What are all the things they created together versus alone? No one can really say for sure. There are interviews that aren't consistent, so who really knows. But when looking at the above examples, I think Marvel in the 1960s wouldn't have been anywhere near the same or nearly as good without them. And it makes complete sense when reading a lot of current Marvel comic books that it will clearly display. A co-creation credit to the one and only Jack Kirby. So now let's U-turn and go toward the DC universe and talk about Julius Schwartz and what he brought to DC Comics and comic books in general as one of the key 20th century comic book historical figures. To understand Julius Schwartz, we must go farther back to examine his science fiction idol, Hugo Gernsback. Hugo Gernsback is thought to have created the first pulp magazines purely devoted to science fiction in 1926 called Amazing Stories and another one called Science Wonder Stories. To help elaborate on his vision, he discovered architect Frank R. Paul for his cover and interior illustrations. There were many Golden Age comic artists who were inspired by these images, notably Jerry Siegel and Jack Kirby, Mort Weisinger and Julius Schwartz. Amazing stories printed full addresses of the fans who wrote letters to the editor and these fans would then mail and write to each other. As these fans are able to contact each other and start fan magazines, in other words, fanzines, three notable fanboys are Julius Schwartz, Mort Weisinger, and Forrest Ackerman, who wrote their fanzine, The Time Traveler, in 1932. This meeting of the minds over science fiction would then establish what they especially Julius Schwartz, would later bring to comics. In the meantime, Schwartz and Weisinger represented pulp writers from 1934 to 1944, and during this time, Schwartz organized the first world science fiction convention in 1939. In 1944, he became editor of All-American Comics, which was purchased by DC Comics, at which point he was an editor at National, or in other words, DC Comics. He would then reinvigorate these very same characters using science fiction in the later 1950s. Schwartz excelled At writing comics of a science fiction nature When EC Comics printed science fiction Schwartz pushed the science fiction genre And edited these two science fiction comics Dated 1950 and 1951 respectively Schwartz would pick and choose From these early science fiction concepts As he created and plotted characters And stories as editor To get a sense of the environment In which Schwartz would plot or create characters, it's important to understand some of the moving parts. Superman TV show was a hit and Mort Weisinger put Otto Bender to work after National had Fawcett stop using the Shazam character in 1954. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number one, 1954 by Bender and Swan, was a major success and with those Shazam superhero concepts with Kurt Swan's clean look, that started some momentum for a Silver Age look at DC which no one else was doing at the time. However, its success would be overshadowed by the dawn of the superhero Silver Age, which started with Showcase 4 in 1956. It's all a gradient, so isolating one event may be an oversimplification. However, Julia Schwartz, a man of science fiction, pushes the science fiction event as a starter for superheroes, putting together Robert Kaniger and Carmine Infantino to come up with a great design and story to create superheroes from bizarre science fiction events, which was interesting enough for readers to buy issues that thrive under the comics code. At this point, because of the restrictive comics code, it's hard to find the proper genre that could actually do well. However, this science fiction superhero concept proved to be much more than fruitful. Around 1947-1948, superheroes were starting to die out in favor of other genres like romance, crime, and horror. Unfortunately, the comics code made it kind of hard to throw in some of the more risque stuff that would sell under those genres. So back to superheroes but the secret ingredient how do you make them interesting again introduce science fiction merge the genres create a whole new brand of superhero that is julia schwartz's genius and we take that for granted today although there was a golden age flash for all american comics Powers from science fiction were a major hallmark of the Silver Age of superheroes, and lightning, mixed with chemicals, was likely much more plausible than hard water inhalation, which was in the 1940s storyline. Carmine Infantino has said that in 1956, Julia Schwartz, editor at DC, generated the Silver Age flash's name Barry Allen from the first and last names of talk show hosts Barry Gray and Steve Allen. Super beings have been depicted as far back as early mythology. Mercury is very special because he seems to be a synthesis of super without being all powerful, an interesting Roman god with limits. He is present in comics nineteen ten Little Nemo by Winsor McKay, nineteen forty Flash by Sheldon Moldoff, nineteen forty one Mercury by Jack Kirby, and nineteen fifty six Flash by Carmine Infantino and others. There's a symbolism with this as a messenger of great and more powerful things to come that continues to fascinate humans. Well that is certainly certainly the case here because this fleet-footed superhero under Julius Schwartz in Showcase 4 1956 emerged with an all-new Flash based on a normal guy given powers again under a random science fiction event and that formula spearheaded by Julius Schwartz proved financially successful and suddenly the comic book industry knew how to create more new characters under that same context this sci-fi superhero revival would also be called the silver age Julius Schwartz would put the science fiction angle of Flash to whole new heights, like in Flash 123, 1961, when he, Gardner Fox, and Carmine Infantino introduced the idea of a multiverse through an Earth-2, where there were other vibratory frequencies of other parallel universes that could be traveled through the correct science quantum mechanical mechanisms. Although Flash was a prototype by Schwartz that broke the mold for the popular sci-fi superhero comic formula, he also applied that formula to the Golden Age Green Lantern by introducing concepts from the Lensman Pulp series, which started in 1934 by Edward Smith, Ph.D., and took comic book science fiction to a whole other level. This 1930s story was about a galactic patrol with each member worthy of a lens attached to their hand, capable of transmitting energy and translating interstellar languages. Their mission was to defend civilization, which sounds like the Green Lantern Corps. In 1959, Julius Schwartz created the new Green Lantern and his Green Lantern Corps as a sci-fi hero named Hal Jordan, and with his ring and willpower, act as part of a galactic patrol, or corps, overseen by the guardians of the universe. So get Golden Age Green Lantern, check. Insert Grey Lensman, check. Have writer and artist figure out the rest, check. In 1962, editor Julia Schwartz, writer John Broom, and inker Joe Jella made this fun 1962 crossover that combined Green Lantern and Flash. Gil Kane penciled Green Lantern and Carmine Infantino penciled the Flash. This was their first pairing outside of the JLA, still only 12 cents. And this kind of exciting science fiction overlap of various characters would be emulated by the Marvel Universe in the 60s, as well as the modern Flash TV show. Now, going beyond Flash, let's look at other characters that Julia Schwartz helped pioneer to create. Julia Schwartz was also the editor who oversaw and pushed the formation of the Justice League of America, with writer Gardner Fox and artist Mike Sikowski in The Brave and the Bold 28, 1960 as a reinvigoration of the golden age justice society concept with a glorious assembly of our favorite superheroes fighting off an alien invasion by starro yet another science fiction concept this cause of alien invasion uniting a team of separate superheroes would also be emulated in marvel's 2012 film avengers so now we're seeing that the dctv universe and the marvel cinematic universe are utilizing intrinsic Julius Schwartz 1950s concepts. Schwartz had an idea of the first man in space named Adam Strange. Murphy Anderson designed the character in a rejected cover, Gil Kane drew the approved cover for Showcase 17, 1958, and Mike Sikowski penciled the interior. Interior penciling changed to Carmine Infantino in Mystery in Space 53, 1959, and he finally had Murphy Anderson return to the character to ink in issue 57, 1960. Now, the pairing of Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson is legendary, and this excellence was seen and recognized and pushed by Julius Schwartz. Under Julius Schwartz, Gardner Fox and Joe Kubert reinvent and reboot Hawkman for the science fiction Silver Age in Brave and the Bold 34, 1961. Instead of the 1940s reincarnation of an Egyptian prince and princess, Hawkman and Hawkgirl were now science fiction alien cops from the planet Thanagar, hunting down a shape-changing intergalactic criminal. Showcase 34 1961 the issue that starts the silver age of DC's Adam in their silver age of superheroes was also created with Gil Kane and Murphy Anderson cover under Julius Schwartz's supervision and pioneering efforts again this was Schwartz reinvigorating a golden age Adam character into a new science fiction hero by 1964, Julia Schwartz had earned a reputation of DC's creative Golden Goose. And as Batman was spiraling into unprofitability under editor Jack Schiff and Bob Kane and Sheldon Moldoff, Oren Donenfeld fired Schiff from Batman and gave it to Schwartz and Infantino to revitalize creating the new look. Julia Schwartz, who was a big believer in interacting with fans and letter pages, a lot like Hugo Gernsback did with him in the 1930s, had revealed that Bill Finger had done a lot of the old Batman stories in Detective Comics 327, which added more salt in Bob Kane's damaged pride. And why does this point matter? It's because it took Batman away from the campiness of the early 1950s by Sheldon Moldoff, Jack Schiff, and Bob Kane and made it a bit more serious and darker in tone in the realm of its Shadow Pulp precursor. That would then create a gateway toward the darker Batman stories of the 1970s, which then spiral into the darker approach of the Tim Burton Batman film from 1988. The Jack Schiff team that was booted off of Batman were then assigned to the Adam Strange comics, which ultimately ruined the character. And yes, that's the same Jack Schiff that blackballed Jack Kirby from DC Comics in the late 1950s. Eventually, in just a few issues, the book was so low-selling that Schiff dropped Adam Strange entirely from the comic book by issue 103 1965, which goes to show how critical and crucial Julia Schwartz was to the success of a comic book at this time. In 1971, Schwartz took over as editor of the Superman books after Mort Weisinger left with Superman 231 1970, and the books became more character-driven rather than based on random gimmicks. In 1986, after the Crisis on Infinite Earths reboot... Julia Schwartz, Silver Age originator, left DC as editor of the Superman books and Kurt Swan, Silver Age artist, also left as Penciler. Their last two books were written by Alan Moore in A Fantastic Goodbye in Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. This is beautiful because as we say goodbye to old Superman before John Byrne takes over, we see the cover with Julia Schwartz waving goodbye to all the fans. To say that Julius Schwartz was only an editor is an incredible understatement. Through the influence of Hugo Gernsback and his love of science fiction and logic, he transformed DC Comics and helped bring it into the 21st century with concepts that he had read in early 20th century science fiction pulps and books. By doing that, he is one of the grandfather co-creators of the DC Universe, which wouldn't have as rich or as successful DC Comics characters without him. But it's not only DC Comics, it's also the movies that Marvel is now making a lot of these concepts from these characters from the 1960s were copying Julia Schwartz's formula for success during this time. So we raise a glass to Julia Schwartz. Cheers to you. You made this world a better place. So that ends our special one shot episode on Jack Kirby and Julia Schwartz. It's important to realize that without these two guys, the 20th century of comics would look really different. And the Marvel comics and the DC comics that we know today just wouldn't exist in the form that we all enjoy. Cheers.